And we are live. Good evening, good day everyone and welcome to episode 11 of the Ask Abhijit show. It's great to be back with you again. So before I begin, I would like to thank you all. I would like to thank you for your viewership and for all the comments and all the questions that you're asking. It's uh, You have reposed a lot of trust in me. So I am very, very grateful to each and very every one of you from the bottom of my heart. So thank you everyone once again. Now, some people have asked, uh, have been asking, how do you ask questions on this channel? So the answer is very simple. Ask your questions in the form of comments on any of my videos and use this hashtag, this hashtag down here, ask Abhijit in your questions, because that is go what's going to help me find those questions. And uh, many of you have asked, how do you have, have been requesting me to make short clips of my various uh, long videos? So I have been doing that. I have created a new channel called Ask, uh, called Abhijit Chavda Clips. Just uh, search for Abhijit Chavda Clips on YouTube. And the link for this uh, new channel is also in the description of uh, this video and every other video. So you'll be able to find that short clips channel there. I'm putting individual answers to questions in that channel. And, and eventually all of the interesting and important questions will be put on that channel in the form of short clips. So today is a live Q&A session. So I have been recently focusing on the questions you're asking in comments because I want to basically find the best of your questions and I want to create content that is valuable to all of you for a very long time. It should be valuable to you even 10, 20 years down the line. So that is the reason why I'm picking and choosing questions, the best questions, so that it provides you value in the long run. But I know that you guys also want interaction, live live chat. So once a week, we're going to have this live Q&A session, which will be only based on live questions which you ask me. So this is a 60-minute session, and the 60 minutes starts now. So let me find some good questions. And first of all, uh, thank you again to all of you, all of you who have been contributing super chats and super super stickers. I have not been focusing much on that, but I am very grateful for that contribution. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So let's begin now. We have lots of questions. Lots of questions. Where do I begin? Let me see. Let me find. Okay, let us start with this question. What happens if Beetlejuice explodes. So Beetlejuice is a red supergiant star that's uh, located about 700 light years from where we are, from our solar system, which means that if we shine a beam of light at that star, it will take that light 700 years to reach there. And it also means that what we are seeing from that star right now is what actually happened there 700 years ago. So this is a red supergiant star. It's about 700 times the diameter of the sun and it's about 10 million or so years old and it is in the last stages of its lifespan it is a star that uh, that is known to brighten and dim uh, erratically sporadically and it is uh, expected to go supernova soon which means it will explode soon now when will this happen it could happen tomorrow it could happen next week or it could happen sometime in the next 100000 years 1 lakh years so when this star explodes, first of all, it is not a threat to us. A star would need to go supernova some, somewhere in the, in, the vicinity, in the vicinity of 50 or so light years for it to pose a possible threat to the solar system and to us living on this planet. This star, when it explodes, it is not going to be a threat to us, but it's going to 
give a give a very interest very spectacular light show so it will shine with the intensity of almost the moon or maybe half the moon and when we see the moon in the sky it's it's this big right but this star when it explodes all that light will come from a single point because it's so far away so it's going to be a very bright point in the sky a very luminous point it's going to be visible in the daytime for several months and it will be visible in the night sky for like 2 or 3 years perhaps so that's what's going to happen and it is situated in the orion constellation so after it goes supernova and it dies that star will vanish from there so that's what happens when this star explodes 99% of the energy of the supernova explosion will be in the form of neutrinos which are invisible these are weakly interacting particles so when this nucle uh, this neutrino wave reaches us we'll be able to study uh the well some of the physics and dynamics of the supernova explosion but for all of us it's going to be a very interesting show show in the sky very beautiful light show so that's what happens when it explodes it will explode sometime in the next 1 lakh years let me take another question can you explain the history of the banjara people and do the banjaras have an early link with the indus valley civilization so the banjara people are a nomadic people who live within india who travel within india mostly in the rajasthan gujarat region northern india western india region and we don't know exactly when these people became uh, they became nomadic uh, traditionally if you look at the antique uh, antiquity of india the long history of india we did not have nomadic people so something happened at some point in time some historical event that uh, rendered these people destitute and homeless and they are uh, reduced to wandering and it's strange that even after independence when we are when we have our own own form of government etc these people are still homeless and destitute and still nomadic so we don't know exactly the origins of how they became nomadic how they were forced to adopt a nomadic lifestyle this has not been studied by historians what i believe is during the foreign invasions the turkic invasions many people were uprooted their life lives were destroyed etc and especially those who resisted the uh, invaders and occupiers so maybe it is those these uh, banjaras are possibly the descendants of those people who resisted and who were basically expelled from their their native uh, ancestral homelands and they were forced to go into exile some people were were forced to go into exile in forests otherwise they would be killed especially people who fought who fought back and resisted so maybe it became a tradition over time because they had to spend centuries in hiding in forests and hills and eventually they were able to come out in the open but they don't have any homes anymore they have lost their homeland and their hometowns so maybe that is the origin of the banjaras it's a very interesting piece of history and it is something that needs to be rectified they these people need to be rehabilitated do they have any link with the indus valley civilization yes we all have links with the indus valley or harappan era of india's civilization it is not a separate civilization it is one of the specific eras in the timeline of indian history and india's civilization so every one of us has genetic and cultural linkages from the harappan era of our civilization our culture which we practice today with hinduism buddhism and all the various different forms of dharmic 
culture. They are all very much uh, attested in the various artifacts we have discovered all across the place in the uh, so-called Harappan region, Indus Valley region. So yes, we are directly linked to that civilization. We are descendants of that phase of our civilization. We have genetic ties and cultural ties and, and civilizational ties with the Indus Valley civilization and so do the Banjara people. Good question, good question. Sujit asks, if the universe is expanding, why is Andromeda galaxy coming towards us? See, the expansion of the universe happens at the very largest scales. It happens because what we believe is some kind of force or energy that permeates space-time. We call it dark energy because we don't know what it is. So this is something that's very, very dilute. It's present. It is about, uh, its concentration is very low. And because of that, the because of the low concentration of this particular force or energy, that's why at the local scales, gravity is able to overpower it and gravity is able to bring things closer. So dark energy is... Its effect is visible at the larger scales, at the, at the scale of galaxy superclusters and, and beyond that. So that's why we find that far away galaxy clusters and superclusters are receding from us. And we can see that because of the red shift. So the spectral lines of these, uh, these galaxies and stars, galaxies mostly, and superclusters of galaxies, when we analyze the spectral lines, we find that the spectral lines are red shifted. They are shifted towards the red end of the spect spectrum, which indicates that they are moving away from us and we are able to find that the expansion, this recession of other uh, celestial objects is actually accelerating. So that's why it happens on the largest scales of the universe, but on local scales, it doesn't. it is not able to overpower gravity. At the local scales, gravity overpowers dark energy. That is why Andromeda and the Earth and the, and the Milky Way are coming towards each other and they will eventually collide and merge some 5 billion or so years in the future. Amit Jain asks, what's my answer to the leftist people who claim there was no idea of India before the British arrived on India's soil? For them, all the princely states were countries in the subcontinent. Let's take a look at the history of the United Kingdom. Let's go back a thousand years. You had the kingdom of Mercia, you had the kingdom of Northumbria, you had Wessex, you had Essex, you had Sussex, you had Wales, you had the Northern Lands. These were all independent kingdoms. They fought fiercely and bitterly amongst each other. And therefore, we can use the same argument to claim that the United Kingdom is not a legitimate country. It is. It was just a bunch of separate, disparate, fragmented kingdoms who fought amongst each other and who had a great deal of ancient enmities with each other. So the same idea can be applied everywhere else. You can apply it to Germany, Rhineland, Saxony and whatnot. You can apply it to every present day country. So this is an ideology that seeks to break up India, to fragment India, right? These people, they are essentially on the payroll of external forces. Uh, we can I think I'm sure we can all guess what those external forces are. And that's why they keep pushing this narrative that India was never a nation. India was never a cohesive whole. And that is what is peddled in our academic system. Our academic system is 
a means of social engineering. It is a means of inculcating the, these, these incorrect and false ideas in the minds of the future generations and even most of us. Most of us have grown up uh, believing in this so-called idea of India. India is not an idea. India is a civilization. It is the most ancient civilization known to humankind and it is the oldest surviving civilization on the planet. So that is what India is. And, and, and these people, they, they essentially are Basically, like I said, trying to divide and fragment India. So all we need to do is to learn the true history of our country. It's one culture and one civilization. That's the that's the basic definition of a civilization. It is one overarching cultural and civilizational umbrella. It has one overarching culture, one overarching civilizational language, and one single means of one single methodology of governance. All the institutions are steeped and based in the indigenous culture. They don't have foreign laws. So until 1947, India was a proper civilization. Now, because of our foreign constitution and laws, we are struggling with that. And that's why these ideas are brought in to make us struggle further and to fragment us further. So it is time, it's, it's long been time to reform the education system and to get rid of this, these, these, these divisive and patently false ideas. So that's what I have to say about this in very brief. What's my idea about the Big Bang theory? Well, it's a theory. It's not a hypothesis. It's been tested. So when you uh, when you encounter a physical phenomenon in the universe, you make a hypothesis, which means you make an educated guess about what is the cause of that, and then you test it. You test it with observational evidence and other means. And then if your hypothesis doesn't pass the test, then you discard the hypothesis and you bring in a new hypothesis, a better improved hypothesis. And then you again see if it matches, if the predictions of this hypothesis, they match with the observed evidence or not. And if it does match, then it becomes no longer a hypothesis. It becomes a working theory or model of that phenomenon. So that is the Big Bang Theory. It's a working model. It's a theory of the uh, of the origin and the evolution of the universe. It has been tested extensively. Thus far from the tests that we have done, from the best uh, test data that we have, the best instruments that we have, the Big Bang is the best available theory of the origin and evolution of the universe. So that is the Big Bang Theory. It is the best model and the best theory that we have thus far. It has been tested extensively and thus far it has passed the test. There are many gaping holes still in our standard model in the Big Bang Theory and in various aspects of physical cosmology, astrophysics and much more. There are enormous gaps in our knowledge, but this is thus far the best model that we have and whatever prediction it does make, they have been thus far tested to be and proven to be correct with the best instrumentation and uh, all of that that we have. Okay, let me, Suman, we thank you for sharing the, your immense knowledge of years of knowledge. We are thankful. Thank you so much, Suman. Thank you very much. I appreciate your kind words. Thank you. Okay.
if a situation comes of a double-fronted war between Pakistan and China, what is India's current position to defend herself and potentially gaining any land occupied by the two nations? Well, I do not foresee a, a hot war between India and China. Pakistan is not a threat for us. We are overwhelmingly more powerful than, China, than, than Pakistan. China is definitely a threat. Overall, if you look at its military capabilities, as of today, they are superior to ours. They have more. It's all about numbers. They have more aircraft, fighter aircraft. They have more tanks. They have uh, more missiles. They have a much, much larger Navy. Their Navy is now even larger than the US Navy. So if you look at the numbers, China is much more powerful than us. The good thing is that China is occupied on the eastern and other regions because of various other threats. And India doesn't really pose a territorial threat to China because India has never attempted to retake or free Tibet. So China doesn't see India as a threat. China uses Pakistan as a proxy to keep India destabilized and it's worked very successfully thus far. Can India in the future gain any land occupied by the two nations? Well, as of now, it is difficult to take back uh, Aksai Chin from the Chinese or to free Tibet from the Chinese because China has a very stable and powerful government and powerful military. In the future, it could be possible if the Chinese Communist Party goes out of power. Now, how would that happen? That would happen if they would suffer a military defeat somewhere and they would uh, lose their prestige and position in the eyes of the common people. This has happened over and over and over again in Chinese history over the past 2000 years of Chinese history. It's called dynastic cycles. You have a powerful dynasty, all powerful, which suddenly crumbles because of some, some, some eventuality that was not foreseen. So that is the possible way in which China could, uh, in which the Chinese Communist Party could go out of power if it makes some foolhardy, if it takes some foolhardy, uh, ill-thought-out steps and loses a military engagement, Galwan was a was a, was a warning sign for them. So the thing is, see, the Chinese. I don't believe they will ever try to engage in a full-scale war with India. They have much better ways of destabilizing India and keeping India down. I mean, look at what's happened in the, since 2019-2020. China's economy has grown by leaps and bounds in this past year and a half, and India's economy has ground to a crawl. Right? India's tourism sector is dead. India's hospitality hospitality sector is dead. India's manufacturing is nowhere. India's trade is nowhere. India's people are, are, are hidden in their houses. The whole country has gone to ground to a stop. India's space program is, is frozen. Chandrayaan was supposed to be launched last year. Gaganyaan, the human spaceflight program, was supposed to happen this time next year and next, next year as well. Well, nothing is happening. So China has achieved all of this without ever resorting to war. I mean, this is a better outcome than going to war. So China, I do not think, will ever want to go, want to risk a war with India, a nuclear-powered nation. That's always a risk. So China has lots of other means of keeping India down. And these are more powerful means. So that is the Chinese game plan. Use all these different, use war by other means, lawfare and other things, right? So, and, and biological warfare, cyber warfare, other forms of warfare. There are many other forms of, forms of warfare that don't cross the threshold of kinetic warfare. And those are more advantageous. And China has, the Chinese are patient. This is a hundred year marathon for them. So that is the thing. I don't see any eventuality of a double-fronted war with China and Pakistan. If it does happen, we always have the 
last option which is nuclear weapons we can tell them back off or else so i think india in the in the in as far as hot war goes is pretty much safe it is the other non lethal non kinetic warfare that is the real threat to india it's an indis- insidious threat and we don't even see it right so that is the real problem that is the real threat to india let me find some more questions amit asks left i think i answered this question yeah yeah thank you thank you for this question thank you i asked i answered this all right some more questions uh okay uh, what are my thoughts on the sudden rise of in soft power of asian giants like korea and japan will the same will the quest for the same ignite interest of the government of india towards our history you know india is a dormant cultural historical and civilizational superpower it can become the next tourism superpower in the next 5 to 10 years if india invests in the infrastructure of tourism india has india is basically the homeland of every buddhist person on this planet that is most of east asia isn't it and even the people who practice let's say the people of indonesia even though they practice a foreign religion nowadays uh, uh they practice islam nowadays most of them many of them and still they f- still feel this this uh the sentiment that india is the ancestral homeland because the indonesians they many of them have some indian ancestry as well so india has a great deal of potential now look at powers like korea and japan these are not military powers but these are economic powers korea was destroyed in the korean war in the 1950s and after that it came back it developed its economy right it uh, tightened up its governance and in just a few decades it's become a first world country with the highest standards of living and when a nation becomes prosperous that's when culture flourishes you can't have culture of flourishing without when your nation is poor right people don't have the time to enjoy culture when they are struggling to make make ends meet and the same goes for japan japan was destroyed devastated in world war 2 and it rebuilt itself from scratch and became an economic superpower until the 1990s after that there's been a period of stagnation uh, and yet japan is a very powerful economy it is a force to be reckoned with it has the highest uh, technological advancement of almost any nation in the world and yet it is so much in tune and in touch with its ancestral culture and that is the thing about japan it embraces modernity while being a very traditional nation it's a brilliant combination and that's why japan is so attractive to so many people it is so modernistic so futuristic and yet so traditional that is the the usp of japan so we can learn a great deal from japan and from korea the number one thing we have to learn is we need to boost our economy we need to bring our per capita gdp high high we need to increase that our per capita gdp is currently the same as most nations in africa right if you if you divide the total gdp of india by the population the number that comes out is abysmal it's terrible so we need to boost our overall gdp which will boost our per capita gdp which means that we will have higher standards of living 
So that's what India needs to do first of all. Only when the living standards are high will culture start to flourish. 20 years ago, there was no sport in India. I mean, India was very poor at sports. And yet, now that the nation is becoming slower, slowly more more uh, prosperous, you can see more and more sports people emerging and getting medals on global stages. Because when you have more prosperity, you can spend time playing sports and doing culture. So that's the thing. India needs to focus a great deal on its economy. India needs to bring everyone out of poverty. And you cannot do this at the expense of military strength. Because there's no point being an economically strong nation when your military is weak, which means that anybody can come and steal your money. So these are the things that India needs to focus on. And if India does focus on this, then culture will revive on its own. Cultural, uh, You will have a cultural renaissance. And with the cultural renaissance, you will have a resurgence in interest in India. India has the most powerful and influential culture of the ancient world. Right? And with that will come a resurgence in interest in our history. So the main thing is to rebuild our economy to uplift the people, to give them higher and higher standards of living, the kind of standards of living we used to have for millennia, for thousands of years. So that's what we need to focus on while not neglecting the military strength. People said that we don't have money for military, we need to spend it on the uh, upliftment of people. My point is very simple. If you uplift the people and build a strong economy, people a stronger power can always come and steal your money or destroy your economy. You need to invest in military as well, so that you can protect everything that you're building. So that's my answer to this very good question. Shashwat asks, some say Buddha did kill many people even after becoming Buddha. Is it true? No, I've never heard of such a, such a, such a story. Uh, the Buddha is not known or recorded to have killed anybody during his lifetime, as far as we know, in recorded in the records that we have about him. So, no, I don't know where you heard this from, but I would definitely say it is the, it is not the case. Okay, some more questions. Uh, please give me a minute. Let me find some questions. So Lara Thomas asks me, why don't we have as much written information from before and during the antiquity period of India, such as the Guptas compared to the Roman Empire? The reason is very simple. Uh, we had this immense education system, which started from the very grassroots and went all the way up. We had small temples that served as schools in every locality, in every town and village. Then you had larger temples. Then you had great temples and you had universities, the great universities. These were all educational institutions. We also had the Mahaviharas and much more. So we had an enormous network of educational institutions in this country. All of that was destroyed during the Turkic invasions of India. They sought out and destroyed our universities and their immense libraries. You had so many Great, great universities like Nalanda, Takshashila, Telhara, Vikramshila, Udantapuri, uh, Shardapit, and so many that we have whose existence we don't even know of today because those are all in ruins and those ruins are not explored at all. So these great universities were the home of homes of the greatest minds of antiquity, 
from all over the world. People used to come from all over the world, from China, from Greece, from Scythia, and many other places. And these universities had immense libraries that contained the records of our ancestors, of our history, of our sciences, of our philosophies, of pharmacology, mathematics, astronomy, and whatnot. And these records went back thousands of years, thousands of years. When the Greeks came to India during Chandragupta's time, they they attested to the fact that India's calendar at that time went back to 6,600 or so BCE. And it had the entire lineages of thousands and thousands of kings. And all of this, all of this, all of these universities, all of these libraries and all of those historical records were destroyed during the Turkic invasions. Every library was burned. Uh, the library at Nalanda is known to have burned for several months. So you can imagine how many records we lost. We lost, lost all of the records of our ancient history. And that's why all we are left with is some rudimentary, fragmentary, fragmentary, orally transmitted uh, recollections of, of our history, which our ancestors after the Turkic invasions passed on from, from generation to generation orally because that was all they had left. And after the British came to India, they said that all of your oral, oral histories are myths. And then they proceeded to write their own British version of India's history. And that is what our education system teaches us today, which is a very shameful thing. So that is why there is so little written information about our antiquity as compared to other countries like Greece or Rome. All we know today is what we are able to piece back from archaeological evidence and some texts that we may discover lying somewhere, gathering dust somewhere. There are still millions of Indian texts that have escaped destruction. Those are all gathering dust and those are all slowly getting decomposed because the government of India is paying no attention to that. The ASI is paying no attention. So that is the state we are in. And to answer your question, I think that answers your question because everything was destroyed during the Turkic invasions. That's why we have so little records of our ancient history. Okay, let me find some more questions. That's a good question, by the way. Okay, Vivek Sinha, thank you. I read in an article that Khilji did not resist the Mongols to save India's culture and civilization. He did it to save himself. But that is true for even Shivaji, Rana, P or Lakshmi Bai thought. Okay, so first of all, there is this wonderful misconception that, that uh, Aladdin Khilji defeated Chinggis Khan several times. So that is not the case. Uh, Chinggis Khan died at least a few decades before this guy Khilji was born. And what Khilji did was he repulsed some half-hearted Mongol invasions, which were not from the main Mongol empire. They were some half-hearted incursions into India by some, by some raiding parties or some reconnaissance groups. Those were not full-fledged invasions of India. And like you said, he was not doing anything for India's history and culture or civilization. He was doing it to safeguard the empire he had amassed for himself, the kingdom, the Delhi Sultanate. It was all under him. It was Indian territory that he was occupying, that he was extracting from and, and enriching himself from. So that was what he was trying to protect. He was trying to protect his investment. He was trying to protect the golden goose that he had captured. That is what Khilji was doing. He was not doing anything for the people of India. He was oppressing the people of India, right? So he resisted the Mongols, these half-hearted, small-scale Mongol incursions to protect 
his investment and to ensure that he remained rich and that he remained a king. Now, is it true for Shivaji and other people? I am sorry, I completely disagree. Shivaji did whatever he did for, for, for the people of India. So there is something called leadership. What is leadership? Leadership is service of a limited number of people. It is called service of a constituency. You need to know specifically who your constituency is and you serve only those people. You don't serve the whole world. Leadership is, is about serving a small number of people or a limited number of people. And the people Shivaji served were the people of India. He re-established Hindavi Swarajya over India. He freed, he liberated India, most of India, much of India from the foreign occupiers. And after his demise, his, his descendants or his successors went even further. And at its greatest extent, the Maratha Empire went all the way from parts of southern India all the way into parts of Afghanistan. And it liberated India from the Turks, from the Turko-Mongols, the so-called Mughals. So they did not do it. I mean, there is no record in history of the Marathas extracting wealth from the Indian people. They were not exploitative in any way whatsoever, right? They did uh, launch raiding parties and loot cities like Surat, for example. But Surat was under the, the Mughals at the time. And they did not loot the population, the common people of Surat. They looted the merchants and th those were the benefactors of the Mughals and the Mughal treasury. And so that's what the uh, Marathas did. Whatever they did was to liberate the country and the people from the outsiders, from the foreigners, from the occupiers, from the oppressors. And the same goes from Lakshmi, for Lakshmi Bai. Lakshmi Bai was the queen of Jhansi. Her job was to serve the people of Jhansi. And that's what she did. If she had become the queen eventually of a larger region, she would have served them too. But as the queen of Jhansi, it was her duty to serve the people of Jhansi. And that's what she died. That's what she did until her dry, dying breath. So one has to look at things in the correct perspective. Leadership is about the service of a limited and specific group of people. If you are the king or queen of a certain region, your primary duty, your primary objective is to ensure the long-term security and prosperity. Once you become the king or queen of a larger region, you will take care of all of them. So Shivaji became eventually the king of great, of great parts of India, of much of India. And the, his, his successors had a much larger empire and they served everybody, all the Indians of that Maratha empire. So that is what it is. Khilji did it for himself. The Marathas did not do it for themselves. They did not enrich themselves at the expense of the Indian people. Neither did uh, Rana P, whoever that is, or Lakshmi Bai. So that is the difference. <clears throat> Murunal asks, how do you learn history simply and do fact check? I'm sorry, there's no simple way of learning history. I, I wish I could give you two or three books and tell you, read these books and you will know all history. Or read these two or three books and you will learn everything about Indian history. Unfortunately, such books don't exist. Even the best books have so many sections that are, are just wrong. And so there is no simple way of learning history. The, the way I have learned history is over many, many, many years. I started reading seriously when I was around seven years old. And I've read so many books. And I've taken bits and pieces of information from all these books. And eventually it's created this mind map inside my mind. 
and I'm now able to see the different uh, connections between various parts, uh, various uh, historical eras and various events across the world. They are all actually cohesive into one single whole. Everything affects each other. Nothing is separate. So it takes a great deal of time. I've read, I've read lots of books, thousands of articles, research papers, journal articles and whatnot. I've read even the books that I hate just to get an idea of what the of what these uh, incorrect portrayals of history are like so i am sorry i wish i could i could give you a very simple way of learning history unfortunately there is none maybe i'll have to write some books myself and maybe that, that may be something i'll do in the future but as of today there is unfortunately I, I regret to say there is no simple way of of learning history how do you do fact check okay let's say you have you have come across some 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 claim in some narrative of history, how do you fact check that? That's a very good question. You have to look it up from different perspectives. You have to read as much as you can about that particular claim from different angles. Read it from Western historians, read it from Indian historians, read it from, uh, from, from uh, magazines or journals you know are leftist. Read it from, uh, see what the non-leftists have to say about it. So read as much as you can about it and then use your intelligence to sift through all this data and come come to what you believe or what your intelligence tells you is the truth about this particular episode of history. That is the methodology that I use. I read as much as I can about something from all perspectives, from left, right, non-left, east, west, all perspectives, what people have written about it 100 years ago, what people are writing about it today. And then I try to come to the most logically uh, sensible conclusion that my understanding or intellect would allow me to reach at. So that's how I do it. That's how I do fact checking. That's a good question. Okay, let's find some more questions. Uh, thank you to everyone who is contributing uh, Super Chats. I appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much. Okay, this is by Ayush. Uh, my views on Schrodinger's cat theory. It's not a theory. It's a Redankin experiment or thought experiment. So it serves to illustrate one of the, one of the interesting uh, features of quantum mechanics, which is the concept of superposition. So a particle, a quantum mechanical particle, so what's a quantum mechanical particle or system? It is something that exists at the, at the ultra-microscopic, molecular, atomic, and subatomic levels of reality. So what we see around us is the macroscopic view of the world. We can only see the macroscopic view. We cannot see the ultra-microscopic uh, world, which is molecules and atoms and protons and neutrons and electrons and quarks and gluons and all of that, right? So that is the quantum level of reality. So at this level, nature behaves in very strange ways. It, it, uh, it behaves in accordance with the laws of quantum phys physics, quantum mechanics, which are very non-intuitive. It says that a particle be can be in two places at once. It can be in two states at once, right? So if you have uh, a particle that, is, uh, that can be in two states, spin up and spin down, then if it is inside a box and you're not looking at it, unless you measure it, it is in two states at the same time, spin up as well as spin down. It's only when you observe it or make a measurement that this superposition of two states collapses into a single state, either up or down. 
So that is what quantum superpositions are. So this was a thought experiment done by one of the, uh, I don't know who was the originator of this. Was it Planck? Was it Bohr? Not sure. But this was the this was a humorous way of, of looking at this, but also an instructive way of looking at this. So let's say you have a box in which you have a cat and you have uh, a radiation, uh, you have you have a source of, of poison gas, which can be released when a certain radiation is emitted by a radiation emitter. So you keep the cat inside the box with his apparatus and this uh, random radiation release may happen anytime. So unless you look, unless you open the box and look inside, you don't know if the cat is alive or dead. So as long as you have not observed the cat by opening the box, the cat is in a superposition of two states, alive and dead. So that serves to illustrate one of the superposition principle of quantum mechanics. So it's not a theory, it's a thought experiment. And there are many more, much more complex uh, versions of the, of this thought experiment that actually throw up more paradoxes. So that's in brief about the Schrodinger cat thought experiment of quantum mechanics. Okay, let me find some more questions. This is by artist Shirish. Do our height or size differ in parallel universes? For example, five feet in this universe and seven feet in another universe. Well, uh, there is no way as of now, as of today, to answer this question because we don't know if parallel universes exist, firstly. And secondly, even if they do exist, we don't know what the laws of nature are in those universes because we have no means of going there and seeing what what it's like over there. So anything could be possible. According to the string theory landscape, there could be 10 raised to 500 or more different kinds of parallel, parallel universes with different laws of physics. So if that is indeed true, then anything goes. Anything could be possible. Five feet in this universe could be seven feet there or vice versa. Or you may have very different laws of physics that we can't even think of here. So anything's possible, but it's all hypothetical. It's not even a theory. It's a hypothesis. And as of today, we have no means of either proving it or falsifying it. So it's, well, it's all hypothetical as of today. I, there is no way we don't have even one piece of information that could possibly answer this question. So as of now, we don't know. Okay, let me find some more good questions. Vanch Nag asks, what do you think about Japan's history and Meiji restoration? Also about Bodhisena and was there anyone who had gone to Japan after him? Because we all know about the isolation policy of the Shogun. Well, that's a lot of questions in one. But see, the Meiji restoration was an attempt by the Meiji emperor in the 19th century to reform Japan. It was a nationalistic thing. He... Uh, he revived the industries. He placed a great deal of emphasis on industrialization, on modernization. And he tried to remove Buddhism from Japan. He, he portrayed Buddhism as an intrusive foreign religion. 
and he tried to ban Buddhism. He tried to destroy Buddhist shrines, temples, monasteries. He tried to convert Buddhist monks into Shinto monks, etc. He failed. Uh, the people did not accept this. So Buddhism is still very much a part of Japan. But today, because of the Meiji uh, Reformation and what he tried, at least today there is this perception among the Jap Japanese people that Buddhism and Shinto are separate religions. Earlier it was the same thing. It had syncretized beautifully. Today they are considered to be separate religions. And Buddhism is now regarded as a religion that is Indian in origin or foreign in origin. It is not regarded as a Japanese religion, but it is still very much part of the Japanese lifestyle and the, and the life and the rituals and traditions. So that's what he, uh, the Meiji emperor tried to do. Uh, I'm not sure who Bodhisena is. I know Bodhidharma. Was there anyone who went to Japan after him? So Indian monks did not really go to Japan. All of this influence of Buddhism and Hinduism and Indian culture and traditions that came into Japan came via China. So China became the storehouse and repository and propagator of Indian culture in various directions. And it is China it is Chinese monks and Chinese influences that passed this on and transmitted all of this rich Indian culture into Japan. So that's what happened. Indian monks never went to Japan all, this, all those years ago. So this transmission of Buddhism and Hinduism and Indian culture and traditions into Japan happened at least 1500 years before today, at least. And this all happened via China. It is Indian monks and teachers and scholars and gurus and translators and other people who went to China and dharmicized China, introduced Hinduism and Buddhism into China, but they did not go further east from China. It is Chinese monks and other individuals who went into Japan and Indianized Japan. What about the isolation policy of the Shogun? That happened much later. That's in the past thousand years or so. Japanese history is also a history of many ups and downs. So you had the shogunate period. You had the uh, samurai who were in power for a long time. You had the shoguns, these warlords. So they were isolationists to a great extent. And that is the uh, legacy of isolationism that was there in Japan for a long time. And it is the Meiji emperor who, who decided to undo all that, to, to open up Japan to Western influences, especially and to turn Japan into a powerful economy. And uh, that had a lot of uh, down, downstream repercussions, eventually which would lead to the military, uh, the great militarization of Japan, which we saw about 100 or so, 120, 30 years ago. So Japan became an imperial power, a military power, uh, and it eventually led to its role in World War II. So that's in brief about uh, this Interesting question. Good question. Okay, let's find some more questions. Can Indian subcontinent, including Tibet and Southeast Asian nations, re re reunite to form Greater India? At least how the European Union works. Is it possible? How will it happen? See, right now the Indian subcontinent is divided on the lines of religion. So uh, anytime soon, it's not going to happen. Uh, some people have asked, should we forcibly reintegrate Pakistan and other countries, Bangladesh with India? If the culture is so different, how are they going to reunite? They are the same people as us, us ethnically. They look like us. They have the same languages. But the culture, the the practice, the religion, the practice is very much foreign and it is very, and, and their mindset is very much anti-India and anti-Hindus and anti-Dharmic. 
so it is very difficult to integrate them in the in the immediate future maybe we can do it gradually over time over the next 100 or so years it's a long process it won't happen overnight india did not break up overnight it was a long process so reintegrating it will also take a long time eventually yes i would like to see this sort of thing happen i don't want india to reintegrate tibet and indonesia and all that but we can have a confederation of like minded nations like the european union with no borders and and uh, free travel and all that if the culture and world view and attitude is similar you can't have open borders with a, a nationality or a culture that is very different from yours and which is essentially is antagonistic to you so immediately it is not going to happen in the long run if india regains its primacy in the world if india becomes a strong economic power a strong cultural civilizational power then everybody will automatically be drawn back to india they will want to reintegrate in some way or the other with india and then such a thing can happen so for this eventuality to become to become a reality india will have to first work on itself work on uplifting itself becoming one of the one of the primary powers not just militarily and economically but culturally and civilizationally again if india achieves that then certainly this can very much happen so it's a very interesting question good question okay parikshit asks uh, can you share some light on the taxation system in india or in the world in ancient times there were many different forms of taxation and all that i am not an economist so i have not studied this in great detail but i can tell you where you can find information about this in the arthashastra of chanakya so this text is now available for a very long time it was not available anywhere but nowadays you can find this text available even in online uh, retailers if you go to your favorite online retail store you can order this book in english translation of it and you can get a good idea of what the taxation system was like because vishnu gupta chanakya goes into all of these matters in great detail on what sort of taxation to employ what are the rules for taxation and and what not so that's a very good source to get a proper amount of a proper kind of information uh the the kind of information that you are seeking in the ancient world you had different forms of taxation you had feudal systems in which there was extortionate tax taxation uh, taxation is basically something that's part of life it's always been part of uh, ev almost every culture or civilization and they all had different ways of doing it so so if you want to know more about the indian taxation system in detail in great detail look up the arthashastra you may even find it online you may even find the text online so please look that up Okay, let me see some more questions. This is a super sticker by Rakin Khan. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. This is a super sticker by One Foot Wild. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate your contribution. This is a question by Prakhar. what are my views about the denisovans and the mahabharat so the denisovans uh, are an archaic subspecies of humans who lived many thousand years ago it is definitely before the i i believe 
that it is most likely to be much before the era of the Mahabharat or the Vedic times. I am not exactly sure how old the Denisovans were, at least 30, 40,000 years ago or much more than that. I, I don't recall right now. You can look it up. So, so that's the thing, right? So I don't think there's any real connection between the Denisovans and the Mahabharat. There was a question earlier about the Neanderthals and the Ramayan. So these are interesting questions. And uh, because we have so little evidence from those time periods, so we can't really answer the questions. But as far as the Denisovans go, I doubt personally if there is much of a connection between them and the Mahabharat era. We know that the Denisovan people did not die out. Their descendants are still very much alive in Eastern Asia, in Polynesia, in other places. There may be even some very small amount of Denisovan DNA in India. Possibly, Indian DNA is very, very poorly understood. We only have because there is not much research done in India because we don't have any high-quality genetics research institutes apart from one or two like Birbal Sahani, etc. But there is a great deal more to discover about Indian genetics. So maybe there is some fragmentary ancestry of the Denisovans among us, but I don't think that there is any uh, connection between the Denisovans and the Mahabharat. All right. Aryan Sharma asks about Uttarakhand history. Well, Uttarakhand is such a small region. It's a very beautiful region. And uh, it's got a very interesting mix and blend of cultures. So I, as of now, I don't really have an answer. I, I know you've been asking this question many times. As of now, I really don't know much about, I don't know much about the history of this very specific small region of India. But I will look it up and I will get back to you about this because it's a very interesting part of part of uh, our country, small region in the north. I see history from a larger perspective. I see it from a cultural, civilizational perspective. I like to see history. I like to see the cause and effect chain, the causality chain, and wh what happens when an event far away eventually affects you? In what ways does it affect you? So that's the approach towards history that I've had. It's a large picture approach. I tend to see it from century to century, from civilization to civilization. So this specific small region of India has thus far eluded my attention, but I will look into it and maybe in the future I will answer this question. So thank you for this question. Anurag asks, can India ever match with USA-China in, in terms of quantum supremacy and how can we commercialize it? So I would say that India in, the ter in terms of uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning and quantum computing is at least 10 years behind the US and China. Uh, in the US and China, they have developed this uh, academic military industrial uh, complex in which all three of these these disparate branches help each other, right? And that's why there is so much emphasis on research in the academic system in the US and China. The Chinese have basically emulated the American system and they are now trying to surpass it. If you look at India's academic system, there is no emphasis on research. It's all teaching from textbooks that somebody else has written. So India lags behind very badly in, in research and development in uh, these fields, AI, 
quantum mecha- uh, quantum computing i don't think anyone's even tried to build a quantum computer in india thus far can india match up in the future india can if we if we invest in these technologies if we build research centers if we put the best minds to work we we don't have any shortage of best minds we have the best minds in the world which we export in the millions to other countries right so if we leverage our innate inborn intelligence and brilliance and if we set up these research centers and if we fund them properly we can at least uh, i would say reach the level of the us and china in the next 10 to 15 to 20 years definitely and if we can reach that level we can certainly surpass them but it would take some initiative from the government for this to happen or from the private sector but the private sector is constrained in many ways the private sector is all about profits if you can't generate a profit then you will you will go out of business and in india what is profitable is not this sort of thing as of now today so the government will have to take some initiative and as of now it's not happened i hope i mean something was announced a year or two ago that uh, 10 million or so dollars would be spent on this which is a paltry amount of money we need to spend billions of dollars in order to make this happen and some may look upon this as a wasteful investment when india still has poor people but hey this is going to pay you back a million times fold in the future so it is a worthwhile investment it is always worthwhile to invest in science and technology even if you don't see the immediate outcome or fruits of this investment the fruits are the are going to be visible in the long run for example if we had not built isro 40 50 years ago then we would not have any rocket technology we would not be able to launch our own satellites and we would be dependent on other countries so that investment in rocket science which looked ludicrous in the 1950s and 60s and 70s has paid back so much to us today so that is the view we need to have that's the approach we need to have we need to think long term so india does need to invest a great deal in artificial intelligence machine learning and associated technologies like quantum computing Okay some more questions Okay Pradyumna asks why can't we just go attack Europe and bring back everything that belongs to us gold and diamonds or any other nation which looted us about 45 trillion so yeah the total figure is estimated to be around 45 trillion dollars worth of money today what was extracted out of india today that's around at least three times the entire gdp of the uk so the thing is this you see uh, the money was basically taken out of india by the by the english by the british but that money was reinvested the treasure was reinvested in other places it built up the entire country right the uk the so called uk and it was redistributed to different places different families across europe across the americas as well so that wealth that was stolen from india is not present only in the uk today or only present in one location it's spread across the western world the entire upsurge the resurgence the so called uh, renaissance of the western world was powered to a great extent was fueled with indian treasure in indian, indian money the entire scientific and industrial revolution that happened in 
in Britain was fueled by Indian money. So what can we do? Can we just go and loot it all back? I mean, where do we find that gold? It's no longer in the original form. Where are all those diamonds? They've been broken up. They've been sold. They've been reinvested. That money has been recycled many, many, many times over. All the treasure is, is it's, it's present in the form of real estate and buildings and, and uh, militaries and, and economies. So how do we get it back? There's no way of getting back. And secondly, do we even have the military power and strength to go and wage war against the whole of Europe? How much money does it take to sustain a military campaign, an extended military campaign? Will it, let's do a cost-benefit analysis. We'll have to spend billions or maybe trillions of dollars worth of money in order to launch such a massive military campaign. Do we have the military strength for that? Do Have we invested enough in the uh, Air Force, the Navy, the Army? We haven't thus far. So we are in no position to do that. Even if we were to build up such a strong military, is it worth the investment? Can't we use just use that money to build our own economy and rebuild it to a greater extent than what it was before? So these are the questions we have to ask ourselves. It's all about doing a cost-benefit analysis. Yes, this is injustice. They stole our wealth. They enriched themselves at our expense. They built up the entire so-called Western civilization based upon India's stolen wealth. The majority of the loot was from India. So this is a historical injustice. Now, what do we do about it? The best way to repay them for what they've done to us is to make ourselves strong and prosperous again. That's the, In my opinion, that's the best way to, to do that. That's the best answer. We will rise again. We'll get stronger again. We'll, we'll rise above everybody else again. We'll get a strong economy, strong, great uh, quality of life, great living standards, and a powerful military, which will safeguard what we are building up. And then we look to the future. We look into space exploration and other technologies and we expand outwards. So I think that is the best revenge, so to say, to those who have done so much injustice to us. I think it is uh, it would be counterproductive uh, to go and attack Europe and try to uh, get back what was stolen to, from, from us. So I think that's that's my perspective about this particular issue. Okay, I will take two more questions and then we will be done for today. Uh, okay, let me take a couple of good questions. What are my views on Mahatma Gandhi? I will go into that later. Who owns Mars? As of now, no one owns Mars. But in the future, Mars will become privatized if Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, they reach there before other countries. When China, the United States reach Mars, they may eventually declare a separate independent sovereign state there. Who knows? Anything can happen in the future. It's all the future is up for grabs when it comes to the topic of space exploration. Okay, Jitesh asks, can the quantum field theory be associated with the rebirth concept? If so, can the to and fro mechanism of our souls nourish the greater conscious and in return refine the next birth? See, it's like this. Quantum field theory is a scientific theory. Rebirth is in the realm of philosophy and spirituality. These are separate things. A theory in science 
is not necessarily going to be applicable to philosophy or spirituality what is the difference between science and philosophy science deals with the physical world with the observable world the world we can see and touch and observe and perform experiments upon that is the limited scope of science philosophy also concerns itself with the observable world but it also concerns itself with with imaginary or non observable uh, phenomena or or objects such as the soul the consciousness uh, ethics and morality so these things are non scientific because science is only about the physical world philosophy is greater than science science is a subset of philosophy science emerged out of philosophy but philosophy transcends science so when you talk about the soul reincarnation rebirth well we have no physical undeniable evidence of this and therefore this doesn't fall in the realm of science so how do we associate quantum field theory with rebirth well as far as i understand with the knowledge that we have today we cannot associate these two concepts there seem to be some connections between ancient indian philosophy and quantum physics there seem to be some connections but those are all hypothetical as of now there is a reason why quantum physicists theoretical physicists are invariably drawn towards indian philosophy because it looks like indian philosophy can inspire you into getting into going in the right directions or maybe it can inspire you by giving you some possible answers but there is no direct one to one connection between the two as we know today so can quantum field theory be associated with rebirth concept well i i don't know i can't answer the question because these are two different questions philosophy and science are separate spirituality and science are separate so my answer is i don't know we have no means of answering that question we don't know for sure with proof that rebirth actually happens there are many stories there are many claims but how can you prove this for sure right so that's a question from a scientific perspective you cannot prove or disprove rebirth and reincarnation and therefore this is not a theory or concept that belongs inside science it belongs inside spirituality and philosophy so that's the answer to this question in brief i'll take one more and then we shall be done okay um the theory which says that universe is a simulation elon musk believes in it see if a famous person believes in something it doesn't mean it's true but my view is that it is a possibility so today i mean about 20 years ago you had the playstation 2 which was a very rudimentary kind of instrument and the graphics were not that great today you have the playstation 5 which has much much improved graphics and it is essentially a small supercomputer so if you have a powerful enough computer you can actually simu- simulate an, an entire universe inside it with the, all the laws of physics with all the, with the various components that the universe possesses and you can create a universe which evolves within the supercomputer and if any intelligent life evolves in that in that universe it will be inside the simulation that is created by our supercomputer so is it possible that we are also inside a simulation which is being run by an enormous hypercomputer somewhere out there it is possible 
it is definitely a possibility so i think yeah it's a possibility you cannot you cannot uh, dismiss this theory it is a valid theory but we have no proof of it thus far so i would say that yes elon musk is right we may possibly perhaps be living in a simulation all right let me see one more question last one and then we shall be done apologies to everybody whose questions i was not able to take i will keep on doing this and we will have more okay this is the last question this is by rohit raina question two questions the history of the kashmiri pandits and their genetics are they related to ancient aryans my thoughts on ashoka's nine secret men the history of the kashmiri pandits is the history of india their genetics i mean every region has some specific genetic uh, peculiarities and all uh, the the people of kashmir are very much related to the other parts the people of the other parts of india what are the aryans the aryans it's a hypothetical imaginary race there is no aryan race if there is any ethnicity which should be called the aryans it is the indians and the iranians nobody else is aryans the europeans are not aryans the word arya comes from sanskrit it is also present present in ancient persian which is a derivative of vedic sanskrit so the aryans are us we are the aryans if any race is to be called the aryans it is us the indians so are the kashmiri pandits and their genetics related to the ancient aryans well you are indians i mean kashmiri pandits are indians so we are all the same ethnicity the people of gujarat will be slightly genetically different from the people of bengal the people of bengal will be slightly very tiny amount of genetic difference from tamil nadu and the same from kashmir and same from from afghanistan balochistan etc but overall it's the same ethnicity so that is the history of the genetics of the kashmiris the kashmiri pandits are actually the kashmiri hindus their history is as as old as the history of the indian subcontinent right kashmir is known to have existed as an as a, the name kashmir was attested at least as far back as around 2000 years ago during kanishka's time because it is known that he organized one of the great buddhist conferences in kashmir in which people buddhist scholars from all across the civilized world came and participated so the name this the name of this region as kashmir is at least 2000 years old if not many many more thousands of years before that so we are all a very ancient people so are the kashmiri hindus they are the ancient aryans so is everybody else in india there are no other aryans except for the indo iranians the germans aren't aryans the europeans aren't aryans that's a that's a word they stole from sanskrit so it's a sanskrit word and if any ethnicity is to be called aryans it is the indians and the iranians which includes afghans pakistanis bangladeshis so on my thoughts on ashoka's secret nine men well we don't know it's a secret society if it exists it will not make itself known it will not be known to us it will not be known to historians the very purpose of having a secret society is to keep it secret and to keep it unknown so maybe it is a myth maybe it is something a story that somebody made it made up maybe it is reality maybe it is not just nine men or maybe it's nine men and women maybe it's not even ashoka who did this or maybe it's somebody else some other emperor from before the answer is we don't know because it is supposed to be secret right so that's my answer my friends it's been a great session thank you all for participating we will keep doing this once a week complete live session and 
uh, that's it for today. I will see you in tomorrow's session, which is going to be very interesting again. So thank you ag again, everyone, for participating. And I will see you in tomorrow's next episode. Have a good night. Have a good day. Bye.